Radio Aram. We present The Green Jacket, a radio portrait of Countess Markiewicz, drawn from the reminiscences of her contemporaries by Philip Rooney. strongly and passionately several different kinds of lives. Mary Cullum wrote better than she knew when, amongst other judgments less clear-eyed, she caught in a dozen words the passion and force that swept Countess Markovitch through life with unresting energy. Always in people's memory of her, she seems to be riding the storm, swept forward in a torrent of activity which she herself had done much to create. Prim, mid-Victorian girlhood days in that vast and gloomy mansion house at Lissadell, which our Gorbooth ancestors had built above the Atlantic approaches to Sligo Bay, seemed scarcely the likeliest setting for a personality which found its characteristic expression in surging activity. But it's just that very extravagance of vitality that stays in the minds of those who knew the young Constance Gore Booth, who was to become one day Countess Markovitch. Dermot Coffey has a childhood memory of the girl who was such a noted horsewoman and rider to hounds. Significantly, it's a memory touched with a fire and violence not hinted by Yeats when, long ago, he saw her ride under Ben Bulban to the meet, the beauty of her countryside. Dermot Coffey recalls, My mother had many friends and relations in Sligo, including the Gorbooths, and they used often to stay at Lissadell, where Constance and Eva Gorbooth were young women and very kind to a small child. My first recollection of Constance was when she took me before her for a ride on her to me enormous hunter and took me over a fence to my mingled terror and delight. A small child caught up and swept away in the heady excitement of that world of leaping horses and great threatening fences and stone walls was to carry always in his memory's ear the thunder of galloping hooves. For another child, as young, the memory was to be of the storm winds from the Atlantic and the thunder of the waves piling mountain-high and rockly point. Her brother remembers Constance from their childhood days. The steamer Justin, bound for Sligo from Philadelphia, ran ashore on the Cretan Rock outside the bay. I walked over to see the work of lightning to refloat the ship, and I hadn't been there long before Constance came sailing round Rockley Point in the canoe, much to the amazement of all the men, for this was full Atlantic. And, of course, there were yet other lives to be lived strongly and passionately, in those early days at Lissadell. 
the life of the daughter of Sir Henry Gore Booth, sharing her father's concern for his tenantry. The life of a girl growing to loveliness with a loved sister as beautiful as herself. The girls Yeats saw in all youth's loveliness. Light of evening, Lissadell. Great windows opening to the south. Two girls in silk kimonos, both beautiful. One a gazelle. She had been a society beauty who had frequented fashionable gatherings and the balls of the Viceroy. Then she'd been an art student in Paris at the Great Atelier, where she had married a Polish painter, Count Casimir Markovich. Then, when the Irish Renaissance began, she had returned to Dublin, bringing her Slav husband with her. When they came to Dublin, she and her husband made an interesting social circle and ran a theatre. So, Mary Cullum, in her book, Life and the Dream, bringing the story of Constance Markovitch up to the moment when there was to begin for her another life, a life to be lived with strength and passion, which did not spend themselves until the end of our days. In those early days of the century, Helena Maloney was concerned with the publication by Inina Naharan of the magazine Ban Naharan. Countess Markovitch designed the title page for the magazine and was drawn into a circle of contributors which included P. H. Pierce, Thomas McDonough, Joseph Plunkett, Arthur Griffith, Roger Casement, A. E., Susan Mitchell, James Stevens. How membership of this group drew Countess Markovitch to the storm centre of her new life is told by Helena Maloney. She had discovered that Ireland was her country and wished to work for it. She was entirely ignorant of Irish history and, as she told me afterwards, had been looking round for some years for activity in which she could take part. She sought the advice of Arthur Griffith. He advised her to join the Gaelic League. She did so, but she felt the need for something more active, more revolutionary. Owing to her ignorance of Irish history, she had not the faintest idea of the atmosphere that surrounded the hated castle and everyone connected with it. She was already a staunch feminist, and she eagerly accepted her invitation to attend a committee meeting dealing with the forthcoming publication of Ban Heron. She came down one evening in an elaborate evening in an elaborate court gown, having come direct from some castle function, which she left early in order to attend this little, this important committee meeting. None of us knew her personally, and I had no idea that she belonged to the castle lot, or I might not have so light-heartedly sent her an invitation. At that time, there was a good deal of social patronage being exercised by the Aberdeens, and their influence was much resented by nationalists. Anina Naharan did not like any of the castle set coming into our affairs. They asked each other, what does this countess want coming here, coming to do a bit of Lady Aberdeen's propaganda, most likely? My reply was, if we find her insincere, we can soon get rid of her. She got a very cool reception, almost cutting. Perhaps the whole point of the story is that Constance Markovitch was wholly unaware of the impression she was making, unaware of the startling contrast of her fine feathers with the workaday plumage of those amongst whom she so unexpectedly found herself. She had found what she had been seeking for some years, 
an active revolutionary movement. In later years she was to recall that meeting with an enthusiasm wholly untouched by any shadow of remembered resentment. I simply loved your Inini meeting. It was the first place in Ireland that I entered where I wasn't cowed to as a countess. Quite certainly none of those who were at that meeting were in the least likely to be impressed by a title. But for one very young member of the group, the dazzling appearance of the Countess on the humdrum scene had that quality of high excitement that, again and again down through the years, heightened the romantic colour of Constance Markievicz's image in the country's mind. That young member of the group was the writer who was later to become known as John Brennan. And here is how she recalls that moment. She walked into a dingy little room in North Great Georgia Street, Dublin, where members of Anini Naherden were discussing plans for launching a patriotic monthly magazine for Irish women. It was a cold, wet night, and Madame, who had evidently come on from some social function, was looking very radiant and beautiful. I remember she had a diamond ornament in her hair, a fur cape thrown round her shoulders, and she was wearing a blue velvet dress with a short train. That was the fashion of that time. With a few words of apology to the committee, she walked over the open fire, took off her wet shoes, placed them to dry, and came over to the table to join in the discussion. As we were walking to the tram after the meeting, I told her that the train of her dress was dragging in the mud, and gathering it up, she explained that she was getting unused now to wearing such fashionable clothes. That function from which she had come was probably the very last occasion on which she moved in society where such clothes were worn. The new world opened before her, the new life to be lived with passion and with strength, and with gaiety and excitement. She wrote poems which she ruefully admitted lacked the spark of those little poems of Brefney which came from the pen of her sister, Eva Gorbooth. She still painted, finding for one of her sitters that Lord Peter O'Brien, who was known as Peter the Packer and trying his lordship's notoriously tetchy temper by humming as she painted new words to an old rhyme. Peter Packer packed a peck of perjured people. She acted in plays written by her husband, but Casimir was not a great playwright, and Constance was a poor actress. On the wider stage of Dublin, she played a more enduring a proposed royal visit to Dublin called forth indignant protest. A mass meeting of protest was held in Smithfield. On the way to the meeting, some girls picked up small paving stones from a heap conveniently left by the corporation. These they passed on to young men of the party in the hope that they'd use them to damaging effect on the decorations and illuminations with which the town was decked for the forthcoming visit. But the boys did not rise to the occasion. Helena Maloney tells us. On the way back from that meeting, I was in a wagonette with some of the speakers, including Mrs. Wisepower and Countess Markovich. 
we passed through Parliament Street, Dane Street and Grafton Street. To my amazement and deep disappointment, not a stone was thrown, although hundreds of our followers from the meeting were walking behind. Some three or four stones remained in my handbag, which I never had any intention of using. But passing the corner of Grafton Street, an illuminated screen displayed the portraits of King George and Queen Mary, smug and benign, looking down on us. It, coupled with the absence of stone throwing, was too much for me. I produced my stones and let fly without any warning. The police tried to close in, but Madame Markridge, seizing the reins, whipped up the horses, and we reached the top of Grafton Street. Whipping the wagonette's team of horses at breakneck gallop up Grafton Street, driving a coach and four through the streets of London in a demonstration for votes for women, these are characteristically exuberant pictures of her. But her tremendous energy, her awakened sense of nationalism, her hatred of injustice were controlling and channeling her activities to more permanent purpose. The formation of Fianna Erin, National Boy Scouts, as opposed to the International Scouting Organization of Baden-Pol, was almost wholly her achievement. She got valuable help in creating her organization. Without help from others, she could not have succeeded, but the driving force was hers. Characteristically, Helena Maloney tells us, she got to work by cutting short planning and discussion of detail and saying, let us begin. She began by calling on a sympathetic schoolmaster, I think a man in Pierce Street School. I forget his name. He was sympathetic to our ideas. He got his name as being all right. We talked about the subject in some of the boys' classes and made it sound attractive. Thus was started the National Boy Scouts, Fianna Erin. It took a couple of months to get that much done. We took a hall at 38 Camden Street. Madame Markovitch paid the rent, 10 shillings a week. She had a cottage which she rented out in Sandyford at two shillings per week. The country was really wild around there. The cottage grounds were used for drilling the Fianna boys who went there every weekend and slept in tents. Madame, the boys called her, and the name has become an even more affectionate part of the legend that grew up about her than her style and title of Countess. In the beginning, she taught the Fianna elementary foot drill and took them on route marches. Ten and twelve-year-olds in uniform of green shirt and slouch hat. Not a very elaborate uniform, for these lads, mostly from homes where money was scarce, had to buy their own outfits. Coached on Baden-Pole's handbook, without, one assumes, the blessing of BP, some of the older boys were soon acting as drill sergeants and scoutmasters. But one part of the training remained in Madame's hands. She herself trained them in the use of arms. Oh, that was solely her work. She was the only one amongst our whole group that understood the use of arms, of a gun, a revolver, because she, as a countrywoman, she was used to shooting herself. And she was very emphatic about the proper use of a gun. Our boys had a few small rifles, uh, air guns, I think they were called at the time. And with those, she trained them how to hold them, how to carry them, how to ground them, 
and she was very severe with any boy that would take to joking with them, as boys often did, you know, say, hands up, surrender or I fire. She was very, very severe on that. She said if they went on with that sort of joking about a serious thing like a gun, that they weren't fit to be in the Fianna at all or fit to be a soldier for Ireland. It was in 1909 that she founded the Fianna, and over half a dozen years were to pass before she was able to point to them dramatically and say to Porrick Pierce, if you will supply the officers, I'll supply the men. But during that half dozen years, she found another cause in which she could spend herself passionately and wholeheartedly, the cause of the Dublin workers, stoically enduring starvation in the lockout of 1913. The story of the lockout has been told too often to need retelling. The stories of Madam's part, organising the resistance, finding funds for food, working in the kitchens of Liberty Hall, are part of the folk tale Dublin has made of 1913. The story of her whirlwind arrival at the kitchens, where she found a weary woman scrubbing the floor, and snatched the scrubbing brush from her with a flamboyant boast, Give that to me. Nobody can scrub as well as I can. Nobody. The story of the man at Liberty Hall, whose main duty it was to stand by with his bicycle, ready to dash off at a moment's notice to Ormond Quay, with a note from Madame to her solicitors, wheedling yet another loan from her dwindling capital to buy more food. A story which Hannah Sheehas Skeffington told in later years. The children, ever the hungriest and the most eager, used file past with mugs, tin cans, porringers, old jam crocks, which she filled, and with a jolly word for all, for Madame had a personal contact and rare sympathy for the poor that removed all taint of the Lady Bountiful and made her a comrade amongst comrades. One day a youngster came along, a boy of about ten, with his little soup can, only to be recognised by the others and greeted with the taunt, "'Go away, you! Your father is a scab!' Madam, seeing the hurt look on the child's face and the quick withdrawal, called him back. No child is going to be called a scab. He can't help his father. When he grows up, he'll be all right himself. Won't you, Sonny? And now have some soup. But perhaps the most revealing story at all of those days is one which can be pieced together from the disparate memories of two people who knew Madam well. Dermot Coffey and John Brennan. Constance and her husband, Count Casimir Markovich, came to stay with us on the return from the honeymoon. They were both painters of considerable ability and had met in Paris where they were both working. Count Markovich had a strong Polish nationalist feelings. They, they brought with them as a servant a little Polish Jew refugee who, who they called Yanko. Yanko did not stay with them for long but got in touch with some dealers and established himself in Dublin. They had brought him out of pure charity. Oh, indeed, her kind deeds were so much the pattern of her life that most of them went unrecorded. This is a typical one which I learnt off by chance. I stayed in her house in Rathmines for some months during the 1913 lockout, when she was working day and night collecting funds and serving meals in the food kitchen she had set up for the victimised workers in Liberty Hall. Her home then had become a sort of refugee camp. For all who had got into trouble with the police came in there. 
One day, as we sat in her upstairs drawing room, her housekeeper announced that a man wished to see her on urgent business. His name was unknown to Madame, but she went down to interview him, and soon afterwards came racing up the stairs and drew me to the window to watch him going out, and then very excitedly began to tell me this strange story. Many years before, a poor Jew who lived on the estate of Count Markovich in Poland had come to plead with Madame to get his son, who was a frail, delicate boy, out of Poland because he was of an age when he would have to serve in the Russian army, in which men of his faith at that time were cruelly treated. Madame explained to me that though she and her husband were only able to get the boy away from Poland by engaging him as a manservant, and although they had no way of employing him, they brought him with them to Ireland. He was a steady and industrious youth, and soon after one of his co-religionists living in Dublin gave him some employment. She hadn't seen him for years and had completely forgotten the incident, but the poor Jew hadn't forgotten, had remembered her kindness and had brought her a generous subscription for the men who were locked out in Dublin. Out of 1913 came the Irish Citizen Army, and in the Citizen Army, Madame found a life that swept her forward in just such a great, heady torrent of activity as the unresting temper of her mind demanded. There were meetings and plannings, route marches and drillings. There was unceasing action. Once, in quieter times, Nora Connolly, now Nora Connolly O'Brien, had watched Madame begin work on the embroidering in Jacobean embroidery of four immense curtains of unbleached linen. A project that would last longer than life itself, a plan that would never reach an end, the young girl thought, until she realised that this was Madame's way of filling every moment, idle moments while friends chatted with her, five minutes here and there between other jobs, an empty hour at the day's end. Always there had to be activity, ceaseless and endless, to absorb the abounding energy. And now, as passing time narrowed the gap between 1913 and 1916, Nora Connolly watched Madame find another and absorbing occupation for moments which could not be allowed to lie idle. I remember another time when I was there, she was drawing plans. The um, street, she was copying this plan of the Dublin streets. There were he was doing one for each of the different places that were being hit to be held in 1916. They were for the commandants in each of the places. And she would pick them up too and do a bit and put it down according to his, she had a bit of time free. But I remember one day some English visitor came in and was sent into the room without being announced and Madame was in the midst of it, the drawing board on her knee and these, uh, Evidently, the plan, anyone could see they were planning the streets. So, um, in order to prevent any sort of comment or discussion on it, she, she said, oh, she's 
That's all right, she said, I'll put this down. She says, it's just a housing scheme I'm, I'm doing for Mr Connolly. The time for secrecy was coming to an end. Towards the end of 1915, Margaret Skinner came from her home in Scotland on an errand that foreshadowed the days of storm that lay ahead. My first visit to Dublin and my first meeting with Madame Markievicz was at Christmas 1915. I had brought some detonators over from Glasgow and delivered them to her at her home at Surrey House, Rathmines. Madame and I went up to the Dublin mountains next day after my arrival to try out the detonators and succeeded in blowing up an old wall. While on my visit to Madame, word had come from America that a shipload of arms and ammunition would arrive in Ireland on or near Easter Sunday. This news, I believe, determined the date of the rising. When I left Dublin, Madame promised she would let me know in good time when the rising would take place. Easter week 1916 came, and Madame did not forget her promise. Word was sent to the young girl in Glasgow, and on Holy Thursday, Margaret Skinner arrived in Dublin and joined the Citizen Army, of which Constance Markovitch was an officer. It was with the Citizen Army Company, which attacked Dublin Castle early on Easter Monday, that Madame was first under fire. Later in the day, she took her place in Stephen's Green, with the Citizen Army Company of Michael Mallon, whose second-in-command she was. Helena Maloney remembers how she looked that morning, and the memory is pleasingly at variance with the over-romantic, too-bright, popular picture of an Amazon in uniform of vivid green tunic, richly ornamented with gold braid and piping. Uh, at the actual rising, um, Mallon, amongst others, had got a new uniform, as he was second in command, and I presume for the dignity of the position, and his old Citizen Army uniform. Uh, the tunic of it was very much weather-beaten and old, but as he was casting it aside to wear the new one, Madame Mark Markovitch asked him would he give it to her. It fitted her perfectly because Michael Mellon was a small, slim man and this jacket fitted her perfectly, except that the sleeves were a little bit short for her, but nothing worth worrying about it. That and the Sam Brown belt and her green hat turned up at the side with a bunch of cock's feathers in it, which gave it a slightly feminine touch, but in all respects then it was the same as the Citizen Army's uniform. And here is how Margaret Skinner remembers her in the dusk of the first day of the Rising. On Monday evening, just when it was beginning to grow dusk, on my way back from the GPO, I noticed that the crowd of curious civilians who had been hanging about the green all day had disappeared. The next thing I saw was two persons hurrying out of the green. They were Madame Markievicz and Councillor William Partridge. They came to a halt just ahead of me. Then I saw the British soldiers coming down Harcourt Street. Madame stood motionless, waiting for them to come near. At length she raised her rifle to her shoulder. 
It was an automatic which she had converted into a short rifle and took aim. Neither she nor Partridge noticed me as I cycled up behind them. I was quite close when they fired. The shots rang out at the same time and I saw the two officers leading the British column drop to the ground. As Madame was taking aim again, the soldiers, without firing a shot, turned and retreated in great confusion. It is Margaret Skinner again who tells of Madame's part in the days of fighting that followed, when, finding their open position in the green untenable, Malin and Madame Markovitch decided to take over and fight from the College of Surgeons. Madame fortunately had met with no resistance. She walked up the steps, rang the bell, and when no one answered, Fire in, fired into the lock and entered the College of Surgeons. There, Madame and I occupied our time sniping from the roof and from the semicircular windows in York Street. Madame discovered 67 rifles, 15,000 rounds of ammunition and a, other a, equipment belonging to the training corps of the College of Surgeons. Throughout the whole time, Madame showed the greatest courage and fearlessness in face of any danger. When I was brought in wounded after a raid we made at the foot of Harcourt Street, Madam and William Partridge went out and cleared out the soldiers who had fired on us from the old Sinn Féin headquarters on the opposite side of Harcourt Street. The surging tides of action were running more strongly now than even the wild Atlantic tides of her childhood on the rocks off Rockley. But before the week's end came surrender, and after surrender, court-martial. There was little evidence to offer against Countess Markovitch, and less need of evidence to find her guilty of treason and rebellion. A page boy from an hotel in St. Stephen's Green gave evidence of identification. A police witness added his quota of information to something everyone already knew. Madame herself, as if impatient with this show of formality, said all that needed to be said, and said it without any tedious show of heroics or theatricality. I went out to fight for Ireland's freedom, and it doesn't matter what happens to me. I did what I thought was right, and I stand by it. She was condemned to death. During those days, while her comrades were taken one by one before the execution squads, she was alone in her condemned cell. It must have seemed a moment of exhausted quiet after the passing of a storm, a moment of stillness. Out of that moment, she wrote, I bear no ill will towards those whom I fought. I found the common soldiers and the highest officers human and companionable, even the English who were actually in the fight against us. Thank God, soldiering for Ireland has opened my heart and made me see poor humanity where I expected to see only scorn and reproach. I have met the man who escaped from me by a ruse under the Red Cross but I do not regret having held my fire. He brought me cakes. In the end, because she was a woman, her life was spared. That was news that brought relief and joy to her friends. But those who were very close to her remembered her abounding energy, her zest for life, and were troubled by the thought of one so free in spirit, cut off from all freedom. Margaret Skinner slowly recovering in hospital from the gunshot wounds which had so nearly brought her life to an end, heard the news. I was glad she was spared, but I knew that Madame would rather have died alongside those with whom she fought. Penal servitude. 
These words rang like a knell for one who was all energy, who always liked people around her, who was always engaged in some kind of work. But it was that very fire of energy, that need to be engaged in and absorbed in people and activities outside herself, that enabled Madame Markovitch to survive those days of penal servitude in Aylesbury. I worked with a gang of murderesses in Aylesbury. Some were bad, but most were foolish working girls who'd got into trouble and had killed their little babies because life with them was impossible, because they'd no way of earning a living, nowhere to go, nothing to eat. To that reflection by Madame herself, Nora Connolly O'Brien adds an account of the way in which the Countess endured those days in Aylesbury. Madame came there first. They put her to work at making the prison nightgowns and underwear, which were made of heavy, unbleached calico. And the doctor decided for her woman who had had, after a while, the doctor decided the woman who had such an active life, sitting all day long sewing, wouldn't be good for her. So she had, she, they, she, they were told to give her more active work. They did. But the more active work they gave certainly wasn't one that pleased Madame for it. She was sent to the prison kitchens where our job was of scrubbing the floors and scrubbing the tables. Madame evidently had the urge to embroider also when she was in prison. And that from the rags she was given for cleaning, she selected those she thought suitable and washed them, washed them very carefully, kept the white pieces for embroidering, and from the coloured pieces, she drew out threads. Well, now you can imagine that job of drawing out of old rags, drawing out threads. And from the coloured threads, then she made, she did her embroidery. She'd get up an hour or so before the be uh, rising bell rang in the morning, and she did her embroidery there. And then she, when the bell rang and the prison officials would be coming around, she'd hide them away in some safe place. One of these pieces of embroidery she hid away between the pages of a library book. And there it was found, years later, and treasured by a prison official. But by then, Madame had long since gone from Aylesbury. She'd come home to Dublin, and to a tumultuous reception in the city streets, the reception that is part of the folklore of Dublin. Again, she'd plunged into a flood torrent of activity, of organising, of electioneering. There were elections at that time, there seemed to be non-stop elections, you know. They were... Um, by elections and general elections, seemed to come one after another, we thought. But uh, she was speaking all the time. One of those elections, which Mrs May McMahon, who was then May Coughlin, remembers, is the general election of 1918. Madame Markovitch was, at that election, made a Member of Parliament, the first woman ever to be elected to the British House of Commons. Well, as everyone knows, she didn't take her seat at Westminster, but very much less known is the story which May Coughlin tells of how she, together with the Countess, who was heavily disguised as an old woman of cape and bonnet Victorian vintage, paid a sly visit to the House of Parliament. She was sent to Scotland on a propaganda tour in 1922, and uh, she worked there for some weeks, gave lectures and address meetings, and then she went down to London. I was with her on that journey, and she stayed with her sister, Eva Gobooth. Eva Gobooth was the poet, as you know, and uh, we stayed with Eva Gobooth and Miss Esther Roper in London. And I remember, it was very interesting, that we went to the House of Commons, House of Commons, and uh, saw Madame's uh, name on the locker there. 
These were days on the run and in hiding, when disguise was often necessary. But somehow one feels that the tricks and stratagems of disguise were of particular necessity to Madame. They, they were needed to add the final touch of keenness to the edge of her sense of drama, her sense of occasion, her sense of humour. No, she hasn't any sense of humour at all. She used to break the hearts of the boys trying to explain jokes which she demanded to have explained to her. <laughs> you know, you can't explain a joke. But instead of that, she had a great sense of mischief. Uh, to illustrate that, I'll tell you, of a time when she was on the run, very much on the run, and she was staying with us. And she was dressed, she dressed up, she disguised herself as a granny. In those days, grannies dressed as grannies. And her costume was a very heavy, full skirt coming up, just barely sweeping the ground, and an embroidered cape that came down below her hips, and a little black bonnet tied with black bows under her chin. And she had steel rim spectacles that she wore halfway down her nose and she peered over them and gave a queer short-sighted look. And she sucked in her cheeks which made them hollow and pursed up her mouth and changed her whole expression very much. She used to take my youngest sister, who was about nine or ten at the time, and my young sister uh, and Fiona's uh, school chum. She would take the two of them out, one on each arm, as a granny taking her children, grandchildren out. And that's the way she went around the street. She'd made these evening excursions and she'd gone to the pictures in the, in the evening with, the, with her Tweedledum and Tweedledee, as she called the two of them. But this time she decided she would sally down into town and see how she could get on. I kept behind, but the two children hung on to Granny's arms. When we got to the corner there of Talbot Street, there was a policeman standing. So, Madam stepped off the pavement and dithered a bit and stepped back and stepped off the pavement and dithered a bit and stepped back she could as if she was afraid of the traffic and this policeman finally took compassion on her and he took her by the elbow and began escorting her across o'connell street the two youngsters following behind their eyes as big as saucers she got over to the other side and he left her outside noblets on noblet side there and he patted her on the shoulder comfortingly as, as he passed, as much as to say, you're all right now, Granny. Nothing can happen to you now. It's Nora Connolly O'Brien who remembers that moment of mischief. She remembers, too, the glee in Madame's eye, and her feet doing a little jig of excited fun under her long skirt as the policeman strode away, his good deed done. But her own good deeds were piling up in the memory of Dublin's poor. More and more in those later years, her sympathies and her energies were turned back into the channel they had cut out for her in the days of the 1913 lockout. May Coughlin has a warm memory of those later days. She was elected uh, some time before she died. She was elected to the Rathmines Urban District Council. She, she liked that because it brought her into contact. She could do things, you know, directly for the people... She was living in the district and she felt it was a special kind of work. I remember her going out during the coal strike, out to the mountains and, and uh, getting turf and bringing it in herself. And I remember her carrying it up the high stairs. I was with her, I remember it well. To carrying up this bag of turf, hauling it up 
of the high stairs into a little room where there was an old lady, you know. And I remember Madame lighting the fire and fixing up things. And uh, she didn't like people to know much about that, you know. She was the kindest person I think I've ever known. But time was running out. The torrent of activity that had for so long swept her forward was spending itself. In the mid-twenties, Mary Cullum came home from America on a visit that brought her in touch again with the Dublin friends she'd known a dozen years earlier. She visited A.E.'s one evening and found new faces amongst those she'd once known so well. But the strangest and at all times most familiar sight of all was Constant Markovitch sitting in her usual place on the couch in the corner, a brown dog lying at her feet. It could not have been the same brown dog she used to have, but he looked exactly the same. There she sat, she who had fought side by side with men in the insurrection of 1916, had been condemned to death with other leaders, and had her sentence commuted to imprisonment for life. Now, as she sat there, she whom I remembered as a beautiful woman, only second in beauty to Maud Gunn, was haggard and old, dressed in ancient, demoded clothes. The outline of her face was the same, but the expression was different. The familiar eyes that blinked at me from behind glasses were bereft of the old fire and eagerness. She gave me a limp hand and barely spoke to me. The fires were dying down. Pain and illness had her in their grip. Characteristically, she hid all news of her illness from her friends. When the pain became insuperable, she went at last to her friend, Dr. Kathleen Lynn, and was taken to Sir Patrick Dunn's hospital. There she died, choosing, in spite of all the protests of her friends, to end her days in a public ward amongst the poor who had been so long her friends. She lay in state in the Rotunda Cinema, and was buried in Glasnevin. From John Brennan comes a memory of that day. Among the mourners was an old priest, who, appearing to be quite overcome with grief, was weeping as he prayed. One of Madame's friends spoke to him afterwards, and having asked him had he known her very well, heard this strange story. I've not seen her for a great many years, he said. Not since I was the chaplain in Kilmainham Prison in 1916 and she was a prisoner there under a sentence of death. She was not then a Catholic, he added, but she asked me to walk with her and pray for her as she went to her execution. Thank God she was reprieved. He paused for a moment, and then he said, I came here to redeem the promise I made her and walk with her and pray for her at the last.
been listening to The Green Jacket, a radio portrait of Countess Markiewicz, drawn from the reminiscences of her contemporaries by Philip Rooney. The narrator was Frank O'Dwyer, and the readers were Una Collins, Peg Monaghan, Deirdre O'Mara, Jeanette Waddell, Arthur O'Sullivan, and Lawrence Bourne. The theme music, based on Countess Markiewicz's The Battle Hymn, was arranged by A.J. Potter and played by the Radio Wear and Light Orchestra, led by Jack Cheetle and conducted by Dermot O'Hara. Production was by Seamus Branagh.